I would like to see young women pursue their passion, whatever it is. I don't think it's a question. It's just sort of a, a statement on there are things that you think that you can't do because people have prescribed it. That's poppycock. Go do what you want to do. It's a whole world out here. Welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. In a world that tells women they're too much or too little, it's easy to feel boxed in. But we're here to change the narrative. Every woman harbors the spirit of flight. And on this show, we explore the magic that happens when a woman charts her own course and pursues her dreams. One story at a time. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. In this episode, I talk to Carol Hobson, a woman on a mission to diversify the flight deck and make her profession more accessible for underrepresented communities. She was the only Black female pilot in her class when she started, and now she wants to bring a hundred more women of color to the aviation industry with her. This conversation is about why the past matters in imagining the future. It's about windows and mirrors we see in hearing other people's stories, windows into differences and mirrors into reflections on ourselves. Learning to fly, knowing that you were born to do great things, and spreading that message of spirit and strength runs in Carol's veins. Carol Hobson is a first officer for American Airlines author and founder of the Jet Black Foundation, a nonprofit committed to changing the lives of Black women through education. She has a variety of positions in corporate jobs, stacking her resume with positions of leadership and influence, such as VP at Foot Locker and Director of Human Resources at Oriel. She earned a master's degree in journalism and raised two boys before even flying commercial for United. Thank you for joining me in this hour with Carol Hobson. You will find insight, determination, curiosity, and generosity. Carol is one of those women that just cannot be ignored. Let's jump in. Oh, Carol Hobson, it's a complete pleasure of mine to talk to you today. Thank you for taking the time, and I'm just really looking forward to this conversation. Good morning. The pleasure is all mine. Can you start by introducing yourself? Who are you and what do you do? I would love to. My name is Carol Hobson. I fly the Boeing 737 for United Airlines. I feel like I've been waiting a lifetime just to say that sentence. I'm also a mom. Now, I don't know that they would go necessarily in that order. Mom comes first. So I have a 17 and a 19-year-old. They both are good students and they're both basketball players. And they eat and they sleep and they drink and they breathe basketball. (laughs) And then I'm also an author. I wrote a book, a historical fiction about my, I would say Shiro, I would say guiding star, I would say heroine, I would say person whom I look up to completely in history, Bessie Coleman. The book took me 12 years to write. Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote a book called the Warmth of Other Sons. She took 12 years to write her book as well. And she said, had it been born a child, it would have been born a middle schooler. And I often joke that mine would have come out with shoelaces and a backpack. 
<laughs> ready to roll through sixth grade. So my book, A Historical Fiction, is that genre, because although we know a lot about her life, we don't know the glue, which is the conversations that stick it together. So that's me. I'm a mom and an author and a pilot, and I believe in philanthropy, so much so that my goal is to get 100 Black women into flight school. So I've started a foundation. It's called the Jet Black Foundation. I think that kind of sums it up. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a lot to explore. I'd love to start, actually, by digging deeper into the overlay of Bessie Coleman's life onto your life and how you first were introduced to her, when you first learned about her, and how that changed you. So here's the deal. I had always wanted to be a pilot since I was a little girl. When I was born in the mid-60s, good God, (laughs) that's such a long time ago. There were no such thing as as Black female pilots. The first Black female pilots didn't come along until the 80s. And by that time, I was in college. So when I was a four-year-old, I would go to my grandmother's home. We were born, my sister and I, there's two of us. We were born in West Philadelphia. My backyard was about the size of 10 by 10 concrete. And every Sunday, like the fresh air fund, we would go out to my grandparents' home in South Jersey. And their home lay on the approach path to Philadelphia International Airport. And so when I was a little girl, I would go out and lie in the grass and look at the planes. And my grandmother was fascinated by my fascination. And she'd come out with a globe and she'd spin it and she'd say, what do you think those people are coming? What did they eat on the plane? I'm a foodie. So my grandmother and I could really relate to that. Where are they coming from? Where are they going to? What languages do they speak? They get meals in first class. What would they have? And as I grew, I never really let go of it. I always wanted, I always wanted to. Fast forward college, high school, college. I was a swimmer in high school. And later I had a job where I was on an airplane more than I was in my office. And one night we were crossing the um, North Atlantic on KLM. And I was literally sideways. And the pilot came out and he said, you know, any further, you're going to fall into the aisle. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I realized, you know, this is all before September 11th. And he invited me up into the flight deck and he pulled out what he called the jump seat. So as he did that and I sat on it, I was fascinated. Now, let me get to your question. I had gone to college. I had gone to an Ivy League graduate school, went to Columbia University, master's in journalism. I I've been a newspaper reporter, an executive for a retail company, and yet I had never heard of Bessie Coleman. She was never in any history book I read. She was never a part of any article I read about flying because by this point, I was kind of a little amateur sleuth on how I would get started. The internet was not what it is right now. This is 20 years ago. And I decided that I was going to, after that trip, that KLM flight, I was going to quit my job and go to flight school full time. So as part of that, I went to a women in aviation and I went to an organization of black aerospace professionals convention. And at the former women in aviation, I met a gal who I just fell in love with. Her name is Jenny Beatty, Captain Jenny Beatty. And when I met her, she looked like picture Winona Ryder. That's 
doesn't look exactly like Winona, but she's got that beautiful dark hair and lovely eyes that just pull you in. And that kind of charisma that Winona Ryder has and had, and Jenny still has. And so we powered around for three days. At the end of the three days, she gave me a coffee mug. And on the coffee mug was Bessie Coleman's picture and two to three paragraphs about her life. And it changed my life by reading those 50 words. I had never known she existed. And I set about to figure out who she was. And it was so little. Book by Doris Rich, Daredevil Aviator, and six or seven children's books, including one written by Charles Lindbergh's daughter, Reeve. It was a picture book for children, a watercolor book. That was it. And I wanted a book that would be a page turner. I wanted a book that women like you and I would just like eat up from Newark to LA and then leave on the seat for somebody else to read on a return flight. That's what I wanted. But it took 12 years to have <laughs> So what did you learn in those early days about Bessie Coleman that drew you in? So here's what I learned. She was born in 1892. Her mother, Susan, had been born a slave. When I say it, I, it still shudders in my shoulders, in my bones. It still sh- makes me shudder. She was 11 years old when the Wright brothers made their flight, December 17th, 1903. Snowy, just like it is right now, like overcast, cold in North Carolina. And they had so much tenacity. They had so much stick to There were brother teams all around the world. Right, brothers? Just beat it to the punch, right? So here she is, an 11-year-old girl in Waxahachie, Texas. She's so fascinated by what these two men did in Kill Devil Falls. Terrible name for pilots, right? Kill Devil Falls, North Carolina, by the way. Kitty Hawk. She's so fascinated that she can't get her mind off of it. What I discovered was that just like that four-year-old me couldn't quite let it go, that dust, that pixie dust. She couldn't either. Fast forward, World War I. Wilson says he's going to keep us out of it. But by 16, we're making things. We're, the whole economy is changing. War's good for the economy. And then by, by late 16, we're in the war. And then she hears these stories about women pilots. People like to say that it was then that the spark happened, but that's not so. From age 11 to age 23, she had been listening to these stories. One more fact that just fascinated me. No one in the United States is going to train her to fly an airplane. Nobody. So she learns that women in France are flying, which means she has to learn French. At age 26, hot diggity dog, what in the world would make you start studying French at night at age 26 and have the belief and the confidence in yourself that you could not only learn French, but go to France and learn how to fly? Good gosh. Now that's somebody I need to know. I need to learn about. Wow. Yeah. And you are a beautiful storyteller as well. So you learned so much about Bessie Coleman and then you decided to write 
the book? And why did you write this type of book? So when I started out, I wanted to write a fact-based book. I really did. But Doris Rich had already done that. She had done it for the Smithsonian Press. She did it without the internet. She did an amazing job. So that was out there. And still, we didn't know who she was. So I started out, our girlfriend of mine who's in publishing, she said, you had a, what is it that the cats have, a fur ball that came out? I wrote 1,200 pages of research. Oh, nobody's going to read that. So then I, I kind of put that to the side, but I never left it because the facts were so compelling that I couldn't make stuff up. And me as a storyteller, I couldn't make up a better story than her life. However, that didn't stop me from messing up and trying. So the first time I tried as an omniscient narrator, and I cut the book in half. That's 600 and some up, but did good Lord, and nobody would read all that. So then I took the women in history I met and I made into one woman an amalgam, Black women who grew up during the early part of the 20th century. So they were shopkeepers. They were seamstresses. They were singers. They were sewers. They were workers of the things that made our economy strong. They were the original Rosie the Riveter. They were maids. They were dishwashers. They were like Bessie Coleman had been, both a cotton picker and a laundress. Good Lord. These were working women, church women as well. And I took them and I balled up into one woman. Here's what I found. I didn't make this up. It just was what I discovered. The women who Bessie Coleman was attracted to were opposites of her, opposites attract. She was adventurous, never say no. Every no leads me closer to a yes. These women were head down, get it done, quietly rebellious. So for example, one of them I met, she was an entrepreneur. Well, how in the world are you going to be an entrepreneur in the 20s before women are allowed to vote? Before women are allowed to, I mean, in some counties, own property. And yet, these were her friends. They were quiet. They were not rebellious. Some of them were, but many of them were just stick-to-itive, like I was saying about you. They just, they wouldn't let it go. The thing I love about you, she loved about these other women. They just wouldn't let something go like a dog with a bone or a dog with a toy. They wouldn't let it go. And they believed in their own American dream, which was to make life better for themselves. These were people who came out of slavery and they said, I'm going to take my piece of this world. My parents worked for this. So you think of people like Jack Johnson in sports or Robert Abbott, who created a newspaper. He became a self-made millionaire in the teens. The man who became Bessie Coleman's lover, the first black banker in Chicago. These people, they were fundamentally wired for resilience and embedded in resilience. I've read so much about it. Harvard Business School has done so many pieces on resilience, and all of them, the commonality, it says that there's um, optimism. No matter how bad things are, they're optimistic optimistic that things will get better. If I just stick to it, if I just tack this way, if I come about like a boat this way, something good's going to happen. There's got to be a pony in there somewhere, whole room full of poop. There's got to be a pony in there someday going where. 
And that's the women. So, okay, I'm sorry, girl, I drifted way far off. I'm gonna come back. No, this has been fun. I love it. So I took those women, made them an amalgam, had them have daughters because the women lineage was important. Yeah, because a lot of them had daughters, sons, a lot of kids back then. So what happens is the girls are kicking a ball around in a garage, in a building that the entrepreneur owns, and they discover Foot Locker, they kick it open, and the moths come out and her journals are in there. Okay, okay. So I tried that for two or three years. I couldn't get close enough. And what I mean by that, Bessie Coleman has to explain Lyft to my next door neighbor. She has to explain it to a fifth grader. She has to explain it to that woman who hops on a red eye and is going to go from LA to Newark and is going to read that book. She's got to explain it to her. Mm -hmm. My own life, I turned 50 and I said to my kids and my beautiful husband, it's either now or never. I'm going to go work for an airline or I'm not. Meanwhile, I took off 14 years. I haven't talked a lot about me, how I got there, but I took off 14 years to raise my children. I had two boys. Girl, there was nothing more fun than those boys and people would belch the alphabets. I had fun with my boys. I was so unprepared for the joy of just having kids. I didn't, I had a good time. And a decade had gone by. Where the heck did the extra four or five years? Oh, that's right. This wrinkle right there going right there. That's where it went. <laughs> I can relate to that. I know it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. How did it happen? So as the time passed and I was going to an airline, I took the book and I put it aside. And I said, when I come back, Bessie, we're going to have the answer. I don't know what it is, but just like you, when you went on your adventure, you weren't sure when you got off that ocean liner from Hoboken, New Jersey to Brest, France, what you were going to see. And when she got on that ocean liner, by the way, she had never been on a boat in her life. And here she was because you had to buy the ticket when it was cheapest. You bought it in the middle of what we now call hurricane season, right? November. It was when it was cheapest, steerage, when it was cheapest. And so away she goes and she's back and forth roiling on this ocean liner from here to rugged coast of northern France. Jesus, cold and rainy and bad weather. And just like that adventure, I left home and went to a training program for an airline called Express Jet Airlines. Now, it wasn't cold and rainy. It was hot in Houston. And I was a great oddity, a black woman who in my, you know, 50, arguably, I didn't quite look like I was 50 at the time. And so they passed this little piece of paper around. They had our names and the whole class. Holy moly, we're born in the 60s. Good God, that was a long time ago. (laughs) And so I went to training, finished what we call operating initial operating experience, IOE, finished that, came back. And as soon as I could pay attention, because the Jenny had told me every day you fly, when you get back to your hotel room, and by the way, regional airlines are one five-star hotels. They were, it was safe and it was clean. That was what it was. When you get back, you're going to bathe if you can. You're going to eat if you can manage to find something. You're going to lose a lot of weight. And you're going to go to sleep because your brain has just been working all bloody day. She called it. Sometimes I, w- I wouldn't even brush my teeth. It just the first time in my life, I couldn't keep a pound on. <laughs> and then I would get up. And so 
had to leave the book. And when I got back to it in about five or six months, I had, you're going to answer to your question, a refreshed sense of me and my own confidence that I could write this book as a historical fiction in first person. It would be the way that she who had been kept silent be able to speak. And the responsibility of that, now that made me shudder, not just in my shoulders, but in my gut, in my bones, in my marrow, in my intestines. It made me shudder. I was afraid, but I knew that she had been much more afraid of living her life than I was about writing about it. Wanted to keep it right. So she called you, in a sense, to have a higher purpose and to really embody her rather than, at an arm's length, talk about her. You really channeled her and probably still do. I hope you're right. That's a mantle that's hard to accept. But I will tell you this. This is what I felt. After having gone through that training program, after having walked through airports all over our country, as a regional airline, you go to, I went to cities. Let me make it very specific. I went to cities, Peoria, Illinois. We could go to Houston to do a trip. My, my base was Newark, but I could go to cities in Texas, in Houston, to operate a Houston trip. We had um, Newark as a base, Chicago as a base, and Houston as a base by the time I joined Express Jet. And I could work a trip in, in out of Houston and never leave the state of Texas. Here I was, back in her home, stomping grounds, McAllen, Texas, Brownsville, Texas, Corpus Christi, places that I had, you know, only seen on a map or heard of. But I was a Northeasterner and kind of a New Englander. But places in Texas made me a little scared. What I found across this country is that people are the same anywhere. What was different about me as a Black woman in a pilot uniform operating a regional jet was that people would stare. And at first, it it unnerved me until I grew with confidence in how to operate my job. Once I got confident, I was comfortable in my own skin in my uniform, in my role. But doggone it, that took a minute. It took a minute to get on the airplane, which is why we do an apprenticeship, right seat, left seat, an apprenticeship regional major. There is a instructor regional. There is a reason. And I have talked to my colleagues about this. Do you ever feel like that? Like you walking through the airport, there's so much. They'll always tell me no. No, they don't feel like they're such an oddity. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when we would arrive at a hotel, people would, white, black, female, male, they would approach me and ask me questions like, how did you get started? Are you military? Have you ever wanted to, well, how can I get my daughter? How can I get myself? And my colleague would be standing right next to me. They would never ask him, white, black, male, female, Asian, Indian. Afghanistan, they would never, ever ask him. So just as I was this oddity to be either contemptible, embraced, or anything in between, I was also strangely 
approachable to people or I was available to people. Yeah, you were accessible in their mind. And what would happen is I had used up all my little brain cells during the day. Okay. But then emotionally, you weren't able to disconnect once you walked off the airplane. That's when it, it amped up. Because that's when the social emotional demand was about to ramp up. Good and bad. People would say, oh, you know, <laughs> that's like people get it. Girl, whoa, how'd you get started? Blah, blah, blah. You know, or, or high five or. Yeah. It's sort of because of the oddity part, you sort of also allow a different type of like relationship with the, the public. Typical, all pulled together pilot, male, white, is doesn't the picture of the most approachable figure. But you just disrupt that. And therefore, maybe it just sort of excites even subconsciously people to just see that. And the more they learn, I'm sure there's so much inspiration behind everything that you've done. And I want to actually talk more about your path, but let's dig a little bit deeper into Bessie Coleman and a pair of wings and the passage on page 193, because I think it helps frame all these other things we're talking about as well. Flight and the metaphor of flight and just that feeling that you are describing Bessie having in the first person. I adore you. Oh my goodness. And I thank you so much for helping me articulate some of what <laughs> the last, um, gosh, I guess I've been flying now about eight years for the airlines, but that's been like, thank you. All right, here we go. So this is, I'll give just like the quickest background ever. So what happens is she's gotten to France and the flight school that she went to had just lost two women pilots. And so the guy says to her, we cannot lose our women falling out of the sky. We cannot. So here she is. She's gone through the ground school and they've actually seen one of their students, which happens, die in an accident. So everybody takes a huge step back and then she takes a step forward to come back to flight school. And she's managed to get to the point in her training where she's at the solo. So it's been an, um, a roller coaster of emotions, right? First, she can't go to flight school and she's the get on the train and go to the north of France and go to the best flight school in France. They actually accept her. The guy dies. And, okay, so now she's studied and recovering from his death, Henri's death, and she's ready to solo. Whew, wow. Oh, my God. I'm tired. The rickety axle between the twin front tires bumped and knocked as we sped ahead down the beach. Sand sprayed against us, and the tiny grains pelted my face. With a third of the distance necessary for takeoff now behind us, the stick gently urged itself forward, and the tail nodded up ever so slightly as we gained speed. At 25 miles per hour, the rudder was effective. Our feet danced on the pedal to maintain direction. Just when it seemed my brain was being rattled to bits inside my skull from speeding over bumpy, sandy clumps, we increased speed, and at 50 miles per hour, the pulsating wings came alive. I felt the engine surge as my chauffeur tugged the tandem stick back. With the nose pointed to heaven, the machine lifted and the ground fell away beneath us. No more beach, no more pulverized clamshells, no more rattle, just smooth air. Beyond the salt marsh, marsh, 
Beyond the acres and acres of opal expanse of sand lay the mighty Atlantic. As we climbed, I could see past the Somme Bay and into the English Channel. At this height, the water, which was a cold steel gray from the shore, became a deep, dark indigo and seemed to flow on forever in gentle, undulating waves. My feet had been resting on the rudders since the beginning, and now my eager fingers grasped the stick. Monsieur Quadron had been maneuvering both stick and rudder, and just as if we were dancing or making love. I followed his every lead. At first, we were doing the foxtrot down the beach, dancing fast, left foot, then right foot, right foot, right foot, then a little left on the rudders. But as we climbed through tranquil air, our dancing slowed to a waltz. My palms were moist with sweat. My knuckles were white, but the resistance of the stick was gentle, and there was no need to grab hard. Just the lightest touch made the airplane respond. Handling the stick felt more like caressing a baby than massaging a man. Same with the rudder. Kick it either way, and the airplane heeled off in the direction of your boot. The pedal leads the stick, Monsieur Quadron had repeated over and over. The two, stick and rudder, were meant to work in concert. Being aloft felt nothing like I could ever possibly have described. No sensual pleasure could top the feeling of leaving the earth behind. It was as close as I could imagine to what it must be like to actually go to heaven. I began to cry into my goggles, and they immediately steamed up. It hurt to break the suction seal around my eyes, but I stuck a finger under the rim and and wiped each eye and lens as best I could. Worried now that Monsieur Cordron would notice my loosened grip on both the stick and the rudder and my emotions, I glanced over my shoulder to catch a look at his face. His face had been so serious only minutes before. Then it burst into a wide grin. I looked down and saw that he had let go of both stick and rudder. woo I yelled into the wind at the top of my lungs. No matter that I was in France, I let loose a whoop and a holler. Texas style, big enough to erase years of silence and full of the pure joy of doing what my brother Walter said he knew to be true. I was doing what I had been born to do. I was flying. Mm. Oh, I love that passage. That was in preparation of her solo. Yeah, it was in preparation. So she finally realized that she could do it. It's sort of this turning point in her. And I can't hear that passage and not ask you about your choice to really allow her to be a sexual person as well. And that was clearly a choice of yours. And I'm just curious what what your thought was behind that and what you were giving the reader by giving us that. So that was what I was most scared of. And because I love her so much, I wanted the audience to love her that much. And I wanted the people whom I love to not hate me that I made her into a full-bodied, beautiful woman. This is a woman who had passion. Good God. Who gets on an ocean liner in Hoboken, New Jersey, and goes over to Breast France and pursues something like you are indeed running the devil out of hell? 
Who does that and isn't passionate? Who, as a passionate person, doesn't have passion in other parts of your life? When you think of people, when you build a character, when you study people in your own life, let's just think about people whom we love, people who are intrepid, people who don't say no. They usually have passion in other parts of their lives. And so when you build a character, when you study a person in history who's so passionate, it's not like they're passionate about this and cold about that. Usually, their foot's on that gas pedal a lot. And sometimes those people have two speeds, fast and off, right? A fast and off. Okay. And so it would be like a paper doll if we made her such that she loved flying so much, but she didn't love a good meal because she didn't love a good man. Now, as sensual a woman as she was, she was also very innocent. She was a woman of her time which meant that she was a good Texas girl. You know, you're not going to like go sleep around. You didn't do that because there were all um, perils, right, that were associated with that. If you if you did, you could get pregnant. If you did, you could get sick. If you did, you... So that wasn't it. But her passion led her to fall in love with a man who was equally as ambitious as she. She probably had no idea that he was married because she was innocent. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like layers, right? Just because you're passionate, I mean that you're not innocent. Just because you're innocent, doesn't mean that you discover, holy moly, so that's what this feels like. <laughs> right, the, the complexity of being human. And the complexity of being a woman. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question about the book and writing the book before we move on. But congratulations on the honor of being on Oprah's Daily Best Pick <laughs> only a month after the release in July 2021. Ooh. Yeah. So, wow. Woo-hoo. So my question is just about releasing this baby into the world and how this creative project has, in the aftermath of pushing it out into the world, how it's changed you and what it's meant to you after putting it out. Wow. That's a cat. Girl, you do ask some very compelling questions. So my sister says this to me. She's uh, an Doreen Carey, an award-winning author. She's won all sorts of awards, bestsellers, all kinds of things. And she describes it this way. And I think that this is right on point. When, and you know, as a mom, you uh, first find out that you're pregnant and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm so scared. And then, you know, you go through this amazing pregnancy and you have these ups and these downs and and you're afraid and then you're excited and then you can't think at all because you can't remember anything. I once found myself in the middle of a Target holding, Kmart rather, holding a pair of socks. I didn't want my husband to know that they were boys because he didn't want to know. So I had blue, I had green, I had white. I forgot which one meant that it was neutral, the green and the white. So I put that. I mean, you just, you know, you yeah, you're not moment. calculating. You're not, you're not thinking. You're a baby vessel. I was, this book was like that. It was like a, this amazing baby was inside of me, inside my head. And then it comes out. And when it comes out into the world, there is anticipation. You don't want anyone to mistreat your baby or your subject. There's acceptance, there's adulation. The Oprah's list was amazing. There's critics, 
And then you have to focus back on your creation and not what people say about it. And so all alone, there are these ups and these downs and, and you try to focus on the work. So we published the book, 100 Years to the Day, that, and I will send you a pin. We have some 100-year pins. That we oh, I love in, that. Absolutely, in celebration. And our goal was to put this book out 100 years, years to the day, June 15, 2021, that Bessie Coleman received certificate 18310 in France by the FAI, Federation Aeronautique Internationale. And what was so fascinating about that centennial was that here it is 100 years later, and we still don't have 100 Black women at the major airlines. So my goal is book, movie, and I'd like to send 100 Black women to flight school. It's a $7 million raise. Jetblackfoundation.org, in case any of your listeners are interested in contributing or helping. And here was the reason why we wanted to do what we do. A hundred years later, there's that number again. A hundred, less than a hundred black women fly for major airlines. Women, sadly, 1% every one of the five decades. So women in our industry are about 5%. United is as the best record. We're a little bit over 6%. Um, you talked to me about uh, Dawn Cook at Delta. Lovely, love Dawn. But we're in the single digits at most major airlines. United has the most. We have 17 Black women. But that's 17 out of over 12,000. Wow. So your project, I want to hear more about how women in aviation and Black women in aviation aerospace, how those numbers, which are, that need to change, and your initiatives, and how we can, I know listeners will be really interested in how they can plug in on both sides of helping support that and also engaging in it. Here we are a hundred years out. And one of the things that was striking to me is that I'm still an oddity. I feel a lot more confident, a lot more comfortable. So as people approach or ask, I'm open, like ridiculously open. But what I would like to do is not to be the only not to be just a first, not to be alone. Our goal, right, along this journey is to have more women join the flight deck. When we sit in that flight deck and I take a look over my left shoulder if I'm in the right seat or my right shoulder if I'm in the left seat, and I look down that long aisle, we have almost 200 passengers. Half of them are women, half of them are men. So why is it that single digit Single digits in every airline belong to women in that flight deck. We have to fix that. When there are more women, when there are more Black women, when there are more Korean women or Asian or Spanish or, or Latina, when there are more varied people in an industry, our ideas, our focus, our work group, our maternity policies, all of those things improve. It's not to take away from anybody. So important. The military used to be where we got most of our pilots. If you look at our uniform, if you look at our pay school, our space school, our work rules, they're very closely aligned to the military. It's a reason for that because historically that's the way we grew up as an airline industry. Military has changed how they fight wars and how many people they train. 
So the military, although we respect their aviators, still there are just less of them. There are fewer of them. At the same time, the demand for travel has increased tenfold. So with less of a supply, more of a demand, the pilot shortage tells us that it is a business imperative to look at a different talent pool in order to search and find new talent. So what I'd like to do is not just a nice to do, but it's a business imperative to go find a new talent pool. Got to do it. We have to. And often, Black women probably aren't really considered or thought or trained as children to even think like I was a four-year-old girl. Even today, that's a possibility for her. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the exposure piece is about 80% of the work and the, the finances, right? And that's a big part of what your initiative is too, is to help the finances, not just open the door, but there's a next step too, which is really essential. Absolutely, because it's great to open up the door and say, hey, look at this, look at this. Well, that's great. But then by the time you add up college, right? So let's just say your average college tuition, how do I know I got two kids going to go to college? Good God. Is anywhere from 50 to heaven help us $100,000 a year. So let's just pick the median, right? So at 70,000 a year, seven times four is two eight. So you're looking at almost $300,000 to get through college. Mm-hmm. And then add on to that flight training, that's another buck fifty. So now you're talking almost a half million dollars. Well, how do we get people through that? United's done an amazing job on a program called Aviate. And what they do is they are helping to subsidize the flight training from zero hours to flight instructor so that those individuals can go out into the world flight and struck and then become part of our ecosystem. That's amazing. We're doing that. American Airlines, Delta, they're all doing that because there's a pilot shortage. So and this is not just a nice to do. This is a business imperative. We have to. We have to. The pandemic, for all the right reasons in the pandemic, if it's shown us nothing, it has shown us that we have to get goods we have to get services, we have to get vaccines, we have to get people's medications to them. We must figure out a way to fly stuff from one part of the world to another. And we have to get our people. How much have you missed your relatives and your friends? The whole business traveler, leisure traveler, we're just all travelers right now. (laughs) We want to go. Yeah. You had mentioned before a couple of things. You were in in such a flow. I didn't want to interrupt, but I want to go back and and ask you a little bit about the timeline because you seem like you're like 35. Thank you. And yet (laughs) you had a career, right? You went through multiple schools of higher education. You had a career, right? And then you pivoted and started flying. So frame those in terms of like ages, if you don't mind, just so we can sort of understand. I'll make this super quick because I'll go as quickly as the years have flown by. So I came out of college early because I went to college early. When I came out, I was a newspaper reporter. Did that for seven years. I was a police reporter. My company paid for me to go to Columbia University and did a master's in journalism, left there, did media relations for the National Football League. I left there, went to Foot Locker, 
I was vice president for training and development. I started a corporate university. I loved my job. Love, 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 love my boss. My staff I had handpicked. I had an office in New York, Chicago, LA. We started doing a lot of work in Mexico City and also in Europe. We flew to Amsterdam a lot. I was always on an airplane. And then I left there because I met my husband and he gave me a gift certificate to go and fly an airplane. And I came back as that's it, baby, I'm quitting. He said, whoa, 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 don't be quitting that good job. Hold on a second. <laughs> oh. And then I took another job because the signing bonus was huge and it would pay for my flight training. I was logistics HR director for all of supply chain for L'Oreal Cosmetics in Cranberry, New Jersey and Aurora, Colorado. And while I would go out to Aurora, Colorado, I would drive by the United facility and just kind of uh, mouth water. That was my goal. So quit all of that, went to flight school in, by the time I was 36, by the time I was 37, I started in September 2000. And I finished in June 2001, July, August, September 11. And when that happened, Michael said, you know, we should have children. I was pregnant by the 17th, had my baby, had my second baby. And I realized that that commitment that I had been so afraid of, it was time for me to embrace it and embrace it like a grown up. I am very self centered, but I knew that if I had these children, I had to focus. And I did. And I had a ball. And like I love to say, 14 years passed in a flash, like a sneeze. And by the time I looked up, I was 50. And it was, you do it or you don't. So that was when you went to the flight school. Yeah, that's when I went to first jet training in Houston. And it was life-changing. All those things were life-changing, right? Having kids. and It's really neat to think at 50, you could start what many people start in their 20s and with such radiance and Enjoy and and then produce this book on top of that. I love the idea, not just the idea, but I love that we have these layers, and that you you know you take the journalism and you take all of the wisdom you learn from running a business and all that people knowledge right that you learned, and then you layer that onto your own personal history and learning about Bessie Coleman and your love of aviation and and then you create this book and then you're you know flying. I don't even know where you're flying next week, but you know, you're flying around the globe and just again with such radiance and it's such a beautiful. I adore you. Yeah. Well, thank you for your intellect too, because I will tell you this. A lot of people say to me, oh my gosh, you got such an eclectic background, but I love how you just did it, which is every one of those things that I learned, I bring with me to the flight deck. And so in the 7-3, we fly mostly North America, South America, excuse me, North America, Central America, some South America. We do Hawaii from like the Denver, some Alaska from like LA, but it's a very versatile airplane. And we fly two to three legs a day. I mean, it's it's get up and go. It's energy. It's a workhorse of our fleet. And it's a fascinating airplane. First one rolled off the assembly line in um, 1965. So I'm a year older than my airplane, darn it. So when it starts getting on my nerves, I remind it of our age difference. Seniority, right? Seniority. And it's a fascinating, fascinating airplane. It changed the way we move around the planet. 
the 737 did. So um, hats off to Boeing. I feel like I've been blessed with opportunity and I've been blessed with the people in my life who have helped move forward. No one makes it on their own. Nobody. Mm -hmm. And would you recommend being a commercial pilot? So I always say that I would want the 50-something year old, because that was a long time ago when I started ExpressJet eight years ago. I would always say I want the 50-something year old me to please the 25-year-old me, or I would like the 25-year-old me to be proud of the 50-something-year-old me. So different advice? I don't know. But if I had anything to do over again, would I give myself different advice or would I keep going? Don't stop. It was the route that I was supposed to take. If I had done it earlier, eh, I may not have had my children. Mm-hmm. We are on the path that we are to be on. And what does your next chapter hold? I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I don't know. I would love to leave you with this one. With, this is quick. I mean, literally, it's 30 seconds. Can I do that? Oh, of course you can. I love you so much. In the very beginning of the book, I quote Rumi. And Rumi is a 12th century philosopher. He's Turkish. This poem, this is essentially what was in my logbook for 20 years. You were born with potential. You were born with goodness and trust. You were born with ideals and dreams. You were born with greatness. You were born with wings. You are not meant for crawling, so don't. You have wings. Learn to use them and fly. Oh my gosh. I feel like um, this has given me so much inspiration and energy and just expanded my mind in terms of like how different ways of doing life. Some of those we plan and some we don't, but the energy behind what you do is, is really infectious. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Okay, Carol, we have just had a hour long conversation and now I get to do a speed round with you. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. So what have you done by 9am on a typical day? Oh my heavens, by 9 a.m. I've worked out, brushed my teeth twice. I <laughs> I bathe and usually I'm I'm at work on figuring out how to raise money for Jet Black by then, by nine. What is one surprising thing people may not know about you? I'm a scuba diver. Oh. Where's your play, favorite place to scuba dive? I love Aruba. It's gorgeous and it's um amazing on top. Below the surface, it's probably more interesting and more beautiful. Do you have a life motto? I do. Two of them. Time, trust, fidelity are resources that you can never buy more of. I tell my children that all the time. If you had a food truck, what would it be? (laughs) We don't get to talk about food enough on my podcast, so I like to throw in a question that's for the foodies. Oh, for the foodies. And I am a foodie. I told you I gained 140 pounds when I was pregnant. Good God. It would be all things chocolate. Oh, man, that would be popular. And what are you most proud of? I'm most proud. I'll say it without crying. I'm most proud of having two beautiful boys. They are big and boisterous and loud. Amazingly beautiful. 
I'm glad I brought those human beings onto the planet. Mm. Yes, ma'am. And what are you reading now? It's called Sisters in Arms, and it's about Black women during World War II. So I shifted my focus from World War I to World War II. I'm reading that. One of my favorite books on the planet is Lady Sitting. My sister wrote it, Lorraine Carey, Lady Sitting. And one of the books I want to get to as soon as I can put away all of my stuff is, let me say, doggone it, the title is Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. I have it on my shelf. I'm going to read it as soon as I get to it. Mm, I'll, I'll put those in the notes below too so we can make sure that listeners can see those and connect with those books too. That, that Most of those are new to me as well. Is there any question that I didn't ask you that you wished that I'd asked? Gosh, you know, your questions are insightful. They're provocative. They're thoughtful. Not too many. I mean, I would like to see young women pursue their passion, whatever it is. And I don't think it's a question. It's just sort of a, a statement on there are things that you think that you can't do because people have prescribed it. That's puppycock. Go do what you want to do. It's a whole world out here. Where can listeners learn more about you, Carol Hobson? Carol Hobson, C-A-R-O-L-E, Hobson, H-O-P-S-O-N, dot com. That's my website. And a pair of wings can be purchased at uh, Barnes and Nobles online and in store, I believe. A Walmart. How about that? My heavens, that was new. And um, also online.com and um, Amazon. We also have a an ebook version that's available also online, Amazon.com. And you can also go to my website and there are links there and Jet Black. Dot org. Jetblack.org is the organization that we're raising $7 million for. So that's part of the 100 Pairs of Wings initiative? Pairs of Wings initiative. Okay, perfect. I will put all of that in our show notes and be sure that everyone knows how to access you and everything you're doing and your beautiful, exciting, enthralling book of Bessie Coleman. So thank you, Carol Hobson. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you. I love you. God bless you. Wow. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. Carol was 32 years old when she took her first flight lesson, and it would take her nearly 20 more years to land her dream job as a commercial pilot with United Airlines. Now she has a new mission, making her profession more accessible to other Black women. And let's not overlook the win for women over 50 in this story. A win for women who aren't ready to be told to slow down and are still ready to prove there is more to give. Whatever the math amounts to, Carol is a burst of usefulness, promise, and aspiration. Remember that. The final point I want to highlight is that Carol, as chair of the Jet Black Foundation, is encouraging everyone to check out her website and follow her. We at When Women Fly are big fans. Her mission is driven by this vision. When you educate a woman, you equip a family. When you equip a family, you empower a community. When you empower a community, you can change the world. And there are some people that just make things happen through might and determination and a vision 
worth spreading. You can find a full episode page on the When Women Fly website for more resources and links to Carol and her work. I am so glad that you are here for this conversation. Season three is in full swing and I don't want you to miss a single episode. So subscribe to the podcast and join our newsletter. And if this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Okay, that's a wrap. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.